Please take a seat. Hasn't that been wonderful already? Just to sing these great, great songs. To remember Jesus. To realign our hearts a little. Many times during the week he doesn't feel like a cornerstone. I'm wobbling all over the place. So it's good to remember, isn't it? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. The one whom you've given. The one who died for us to give us life. The one on whom we are to build our lives. Lord, we pray that you'd help us this evening as we're in your word to to see more of Jesus and to see how it is that you call us to build our lives on him. Amen. Romans chapter 7, you'll want to have something open in front of you. It could be the Pew Bible, it could be your journal, it could be your device, I don't mind. We're going to spend our time this evening in a couple of ways. We're going to begin as we always do and as Stuart promised that we would, and that is to come to terms with the biblical text of Romans chapter 7, the second half of it. But then we're going to spend the last bit of our time stepping back a little bit from the text, and I'll be asking the question, what Romans 7 has to teach us about our spiritual formation? What's this passage going to do? in our lives? What can we learn here for being shaped in likeness to Jesus Christ? So that's what we're going to try and do this evening. Even a quick glance at the headings there in the the NIV tells us that chapter 7 is about the law. So the first six verses we're told are about being released from the law and bound to Christ. The remainder of the chapter we're told has to do with the law and sin. That's not particularly specific. But, but we know, just looking at those two headings, that this chapter is about uh, the, the place of the law in the life of a Christian. I thought before we, we jump back into chapter 7, to help us understand chapter 7, would quickly recap on what Paul said about the law so far in this book of Romans. Back in chapter 3, he began by telling us, chapter 3, verse 20, feel free to flick with me, that the law reveals sin, chapter 3, verse 20. And in verse 19, it condemns the sinner. In chapters 4 and 5, it, the, the law defines sin as transgression. We wouldn't know that sin was sin, except that the, the law makes it clear that it is. Also in chapter 4, the law brings wrath And it's brought in so that the trespass might increase. So these are not not very positive uh, things that Paul is saying about the law in these early chapters of Romans. And it's because the law can't do anything to help make a person right with God that a righteousness, God's righteousness has been revealed in the gospel apart from the law. You might remember that. Way back in chapter 1, and repeated in chapter 3, there's a righteousness been revealed that's apart from the law. That would have been a shocking idea to the, the Jewish people of Paul's time. 
But it's faith in Jesus Christ that, that now justifies the sinner before God. Not obeying the law, but faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 27. But this faith in Jesus then teaches us to uphold the law. This is where it gets more complicated. By assigning the law its proper function. And in chapter 4, we get a picture of the, the great father of the people of Israel, Abram himself. He received God's promise not through the law, we're told, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. So these are some of the things that Paul has said about the law so far in Romans. Uh, now that we've recapped on some of that very quickly, I'd like us to spend a few minutes following a lead which John Stott offers in his commentary. He invites us to consider three possible attitudes to the law. The first two of which Paul rejects and the third of which he commends. We might call them legalism, antinomianism, and the law-fulfilling freedom. Antinomianism, by the way, um, I don't really like it in preaching when we use words that people don't understand. That, that's not something that is a big value of mine. So when we use a word like that, I'd prefer to explain it rather than just gloss over it. Uh, the, the Greek word for, for law is nomos. So if we're anti-nomos, antinomian, we're against the law. We, we don't like the law. Okay, so that's what an antinomian is. Let, let's think very quickly about those three postures we can have towards the biblical law. Legalists are under the law. They're in bondage to it. They imagine that their relationship with God has something to do with obeying the law and pleasing him by doing so. They're seeking to be made right with God, justified with God by the law, and they're probably hoping to be sanctified. That means to be made, to be made better than we are, to be made holy in the end. They, they imagine that trying harder to keep the law is going to do that. What happens for the legalist, always and without fail, is that they're crushed by the law. It has no, no effect. It has no power to do either of those things it promises. Antinomians or libertines, so they're going to a different extreme. They, they blame the law for all of our problems. Uh, they reject the law altogether. They claim to be rid of, of any obligation to the law and, and its commands. So they turn liberty into license but this, the third option, which is the one that Paul advocates, is what Stott calls law-fulfilling free people. They rejoice in their freedom from the law. It's not the way in which they're made right with God or, or justified or sanctified. But they also feel free to fulfill it, not to set it aside and forget about it. So they delight in the law as a revelation of God's will, but they recognize that the power to fulfill the law is one that God gives us by his spirit. So legalists both fear the law and are in bondage to it. Antinomians hate the law and they set it aside. Law-abiding free people love the law and they fulfill it in the power of God's spirit. If we look carefully, we can see each of these 
three attitudes to the law in Romans 7. Paul doesn't use that language, which I've just used. So we need to notice these in their sort of shadowy forms, but they're there all right. In verses 1 to 6, Paul tells us that, that the law no longer has authority over us. By dying with Christ, we have been released from the law. Do you remember that? And we now belong to Christ instead. So that's Paul's message for legalists. You're not bound by law. Verses 7 to 13, he defends the law against the unjust criticism that it, it causes both sin and death. Paul attributes, attributes these instead to our fallen nature. The law itself is good, verses 12 and 13. This is Paul's message to antinomians. Uh, by the way, this gives me a chance to say that I got our passage divisions wrong in our Romans series. I invited Frank to preach last week on verses 1 to 12, which means I took the punchline of the, the passage he was dealing with away from him. Frank, you should have had verse 13. Forgive me. It's a much better conclusion to what you were preaching than it is an introduction to what I'm dealing with this evening. In tonight's passage, verses 14 to 25, Paul describes the inner conflict of those who are still living under the regime of the law. If left to ourselves in our fallenness, we cannot keep God's law, even if we delight in it, nor can the law rescue us. But God has done what the law couldn't do. He's given us his spirit. We're going to see this. This is going to be a frustrating sermon and a frustrating passage. The stuff that we really need is, is there in chapter 8, but there's important stuff to learn here in the second half of chapter 7. We're going we're gonna to be thinking about people moving towards freedom and fulfilling the law. Okay, we've recapped on Paul's teaching on the law so far in Romans. We've outlined what he said so far in chapter 7. Let's come now to our verses 14 to 25. I, I imagine some people here are quite aware of what's going on in Romans and other people maybe less so. There's a huge debate about this last part of chapter 7 and I thought it'd take two minutes to at least let you in on the debate. I first became aware of it 25 years ago when I was a theological student and I took a course on Romans and the debate is about the identity of the I persona, which Paul takes on in verse 14. Whenever Paul's talking about I, he says some things that are hard to reconcile. So people have come up with different ways of explaining that. Some people say that Paul's taking on the persona of a not yet Christian self. Have a look at the things he says. He says, I'm unspiritual. I'm sold as a slave to sin, verse 14. Others, so Augustine and the Protestant reformers, they said that Paul's uh, writing as a Christian and even as a mature one, and they would make three points at least to defend that view. They say he calls himself unspiritual. Surely that's a sign that he, he gets it. God has opened his eyes. He, he sees his sin. That's, that's more like a Christian speaking than a non-Christian. He says that the law is spiritual, verse 14, and he talks about the good I want to do, verse 19. So he wants to obey God's law, even if he can't. Again, that feels like the appetite of a, of a person who's, who's been 
born again, wants to honor God. He's longing to be set free, verse 24. Surely that's a sign that this man is already converted and he's longing for full and, and final sanctification. The truth is, you can find any number of commentators on either side of this debate. What I'm going to try and do is just keep us with what the text actually tells us. I think the text tells us three things about this person. This person loves the law, as a Christian would. This person still feels like a slave to sin, so he's not free. And he doesn't seem to know very much yet about the Holy Spirit. Or he's certainly not talking about the Spirit's part in all of this. I think if we hold those three things together and treat this person in that way, that, that, as I said, that gives us a, a wonderful anticipation of what Paul will be talking about when we get to chapter 8. We might portray this person as somebody who's entered into the new life of Christ but hasn't accessed the power which God wants them to have to live this new life. That's possibly quite a common thing, actually. To be people who are born again, but maybe don't know God's power working in us. That's why this could be a helpful place to spend some time this evening. Okay. Now we're ready to finally get a good look at this evening's text. We're going to take it in two paragraphs the way it is in your NIV there. We're going to look at verses 14 to 20, which deal with the law and flesh and believers. And then verses 21 to 25, we'll notice the double life of believers under the law. So first of all, 14 to 20, about the law and the flesh in believers. I'm sure you've noticed this I know I certainly have in the study at home. Sometimes Paul's writing in Romans can be quite circular. I'll, I'll use the word reiterative. He seems to be saying almost the same thing a second time around. This, this paragraph, 14 to 20, very much bears this hallmark. The best way to read this paragraph, I think, is to see it as doing two two circles of one argument. The, the last three verses repeat broadly the argument of the first four. Notice where the repetition begins. So in the first part of the paragraph, it begins Paul saying, we know, in verse 14, and then he reiterates in verse 18, I know. So that's where the, the second turn of the wheel starts, verse 18, all right? Each turn of the argument begins with a frank assessment of his own sinfulness. He says, verse 14, I am unspiritual. Verse 18, I know that good itself does not dwell in me. After beginning the argument with this frank assessment of his own sinfulness, he goes on to describe the conflict which the sin inside him causes him. Verse 15, he says, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And then for the second iteration, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Do, do, you see what I, do you see what I mean? He's saying the same thing a couple of times over. I'm sinful. I'm conflicted. 
And it's my sinful nature that's responsible. Look at, first of all, verse 16. And if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. Look at the almost identical language in verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. I'm sinful, I'm conflicted, and it's my sinful nature that's to blame. In the closing paragraph of the chapter, Paul tells us what it, what it feels like to, to live this life, this life with this double reality. By the way, I need to keep saying this today. This is not the full picture. I, I don't want you to go home tonight and say that's, that's Paul describing the Christian life. That's not where God wants you and I to stay. He's describing a very real thing, but it's not God's best for us. So bear that in mind. The Holy Spirit, we're going to learn more about that next week. Paul describes the double life of the Christian who's living without the power of the Holy Spirit. And he does it four times in four different ways. He talks about the two egos, the two laws, the two cries, and the two slaveries. First of all, the two egos. So I find this law at work, even though I want to do, do good, evil is right there with me. When Paul uses the word law there, he's using it to mean a pattern or a principle rather than a, a legal construct. The antithesis here between the two eyes, the, the eye who wants the good and the eye who, who has evil right there with him, it's even more obvious in the, in the Greek we could translate it literally like this. When in me there is a desire to do good, then by me evil is close at hand. So the evil and the good are both present simultaneously. This is a fallen but saved person. In the double life of the believer, there are two laws for in my inner being, I delight in God's law, verse 22. My born-again self loves the law. It's the source of my joy. The, the delight in the law is also called the law of my mind, verse 23, because my renewed mind approves and endorses God's law. But there's a second, very different law, which is at work in the members of my body. This is what Paul calls the law of sin, continuously waging war against the, the law of my mind. It takes me its prisoner. So there's a law of my mind that operates in my inner being and delights in God's law. But there's also the law of sin which operates in the members of my body and fights against the law of my mind and takes me captive. These two laws this is the condition of the person who's still under law. It's the Holy Spirit who's missing. Thirdly, there are two cries from the heart. Do you see them there? Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? I, I am I'm caught forever. Am I to live forever in this, this conflicted life? And then there's a second cry. Verse 25, Thanks be to God who delivers me 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. The second cry, it, I'm just glad there's no big gap between the two. It feels to me like an immediate response to the first. It's a springboard forward into chapter 8 where God's Son and God's Spirit do what the law was powerless to do. Fourthly, there are two slaveries. We see this in the second half of verse 25. This verse serves as a great summary for the dual life of the believer before we account for the work of the Holy Spirit. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. The conflict then, as we, we try to summarize this and, and hold it in a way that we can understand, the conflict is between my renewed mind and my unrenewed sinful nature. Actually, that's not quite right. Have a look with me. A careful look at verse 25. You'll see there a footnote and the letter D. And you'll see at the bottom of the page that the phrase translated in my sinful nature is more literally translated in the flesh. We're translating at this point the Greek word sarx, meaning the body or the flesh. And you'll see at the bottom of the page a footnote C, which you can trace back up to verse 18, another place where Paul's talking about the body or the flesh. So the conflict that Paul's talking about here is my body with its predisposition to sin and my renewed mind which wants to please and honor God. It's somewhat reminiscent, I think, of Jesus' words to his disciples. Do you remember he said it? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Folks, I think we have got a pretty good handle by now on that passage. And what I'd like to do for the remainder of our time this evening is to reflect on what we've learned here, especially how it relates to our spiritual formation in likeness to Christ. I want to talk about two things. First of all, I'd like to talk about the role of the body in our spiritual life. And then I'd like to talk about what we learn here in Romans 7 about spiritual formation. In these closing verses of Romans 7, Paul highlights this conflict that we all feel, those of us who want to live for Jesus Christ. My body with its predisposition to sin and my renewed mind, which would love to live well and honor God. To help us get to grips with this for a moment, I, I need to do what I've said there. I want to talk about the role of the body in our spiritual life. This will be quite unusual for you, but that's all right. Your body is the focal point of your presence in the world. It's the vehicle which brings you through each day, has brought you through all your years to this point. We were born with bodies, I think. I think I'm just checking. As far as I can tell, we all we're born with bodies. Our body is the place where our person is developed. It's the place where our wills are expressed. You can't separate human relationships 
from bodies. You can't find me or relate to me except in my body. What, what do I mean by that? When we go and have a coffee together, you will use your vocal cords of your body to talk to me and I'll use my ears and my body to pick up what you're saying and my brain, which is part of my body, will do what it does. Without our bodies, we, we, we would miss each other entirely. Our body is fundamental to the person that we are. For, for me, I, I can never escape the fact that I am the son of Irmgard Schake and the son of Lutz Ebbinghaus. That's who I am. I was born into the world as, as God gave them the gift of a child. This is the body I have. This is the person I am. As we live in these bodies, a thing happens over time. Every choice that we make, every action that we do begins to shape us. They begin to settle into what we might call our character. You, you might know what I mean by that, a person's character, who, who they are. We become the kind of people who react more or less automatically without having to think about what we're doing. Mostly that, that thing that the body does where it takes repeated behaviors and beds them down into character, mostly that's a, a, a really, really good thing. It would be really hard to live life if that didn't happen. Think, think, for example, about learning to drive, right? Do you remember how tough it was to learn to drive? I'm back in that zone with my teenage kids at the moment. Right, put in the clutch. That, that's right, it's the one on the left. Put it in gear. Now, look at the wee diagram on the stick. No, that, that's not first gear, that's third. Now, release the clutch. Slowly, no, 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 slowly. Oh, okay. And we've stalled. That's all right. Let's, let's start again. You remember how incredibly difficult it is to learn to drive a car, to teach your body to do that thing. But once your body learns, you can drive a car without thinking about it. Have you ever had that experience where you've driven home from somewhere and when you park the car in the driveway, you think, oh goodness, how did I get here? You wouldn't want to confess it to a traffic cop, probably. But the body has learned how to drive without, without thinking. There's a muscle memory. This is who we are. This is how the body works, folks. It's really, really good news for practical tasks like learning to drive, learning to ride a bike, all, all those sorts of things. It's great that the body can take a thing that was once very difficult, but can make it natural. But this news that the body develops habits and that it takes on a life of its own, it's not such good news sometimes for our spiritual formation. You see, our bodies are training and being trained in a world of evil and wrong. So the automatic responses our bodies learn are often sinful. Our bodies do the wrong thing 
before we even get the chance to talk to them about it. Do you know that feeling? I get out of bed in the morning and I've done wrong stuff before I've woken up. It's, it's, just, it's just the way my body works. It's just what's in there. The translators of the King James Version, when they came to Romans 7, uh, verse 5, they translated that verse, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin did work in our members. Our, the members of our bodies have sin working in them. Our, our sin has become our muscle memory. It can thwart our best efforts to live for Jesus and for his glory. There's something entirely predictable about this, Paul says, verse 21. It's like a law of nature. That's what he's talking about in verse 21. When our body behaves like this, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me, says Paul, verse 17. That's the bad news about the flesh, about our bodies. But at the same time, this amazing capacity that the body has to be trained and to learn new habits means that we can be reformed and to become like Jesus. I've learned much about this from Dallas Willard, his teaching on this subject. Reformation of the body is one of the major parts of the process of spiritual formation. The body you see in the biblical view if you read that word flesh in the Bible and you think of the flesh as bad, you, you've misunderstood. The flesh isn't bad. The flesh is, is, it's our bodies. What we have rather is that our flesh becomes infected with evil and it's waiting to be delivered. I seem to have lost my way. Spiritual formation, therefore, it, it has to be a bodily process. It can't succeed unless these bodies that we live in change. As I explain that this evening, maybe, maybe a light's going on for you there. Maybe you've tried to follow Jesus for 10, 20, 30, a few more years. And You've wondered about a lack of progress. I think Paul teaches us something here this evening. There are habits, there's sin in, in our blood, in our veins. It's, it's in our muscle memory. It, it's not simply going to disappear. So we've talked about the role of the body in spiritual formation. I want to talk for the last few moments about what we can learn here in Romans 7 regarding our spiritual transformation. Paul expects to see people transformed. That's why he talks about transformation so widely in his letters. But the transformation that Paul teaches about is only available to people who will take his theology seriously. And it's particularly his theology about our union with Christ. I don't know if you remember, we talked about this particularly in chapter 6. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. Paul wants us to see that for a person who's trusted Jesus, their, their trusting him brings them into union with him. 
Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If I'm a Christian, I live a new life. That's what Paul says. It's, it's a different life than the one I was living before, and it's a different life than a person lives who isn't in Christ. It's different than both of those two things. In Colossians 3, Paul speaks of Christ who is our life. Christ, Christ becomes our life for us. In 2 Corinthians 4, he talks about the life of Jesus being revealed in our body. Next week in Romans 8, we'll see that Paul contrasts the law of sin and death with the law of the Spirit who gives life and sets you free from the law of sin and death. Earlier in Romans, Paul had emphasized that this life which flows from Christ to us is something totally different than we've ever experienced on a merely natural plane. It's different not only in degree, but also in kind. Chapter 4, 6, sorry, verse 4, he talks about a kinotos zoas, a new quality of life. It's a life of supernatural quality. This is what Paul means when he says that anyone who's in Christ is a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5. As soon as a person is born again into the new life that God grants those who come to Jesus, this person now lives between these two realms. That the, the natural or the fleshly, the bodily that we've described, or the supernatural and the spiritual. As soon as the, the new life enters my soul, I now have a responsibility and an opportunity to move in this direction, to focus my whole being, to orient myself toward it. This is my part in my spiritual formation, to move toward my new life in Christ. And this is the thing that I've realized. God will not do that for me. That, that's something that I need to do. This is what Paul's talking about here in Romans 7. Paul's been talking of a time when he found the impulses of his personality solidified through lifelong training in the ways of sin. They continue to be at work in his life, these old patterns. His life's not in conformity with the new life which has entered his soul. So he says, verse 15, for what I do, want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. The new life which God offers us in our union with Christ gives us a choice. Which person am I going to be? Am I going to be the old Christoph with those ingrained sinful habits, that muscle memory? Or am I going to become the new Christoph in union now with Christ, keeping step with his spirit, allowing his transforming work in my life? It's a choice we all face. Those who've been born again into union with Christ. We said it three weeks ago, 
at the end of chapter 6. We need to take a stand as to, to who we are in this new life. We must identify ourselves with the Christ life in us. We must stand against the sin that's in our members and present ourselves to Christ. We must settle in our will for once and for all and then every day thereafter the question of whose we intend to be. That's what Paul's talking about back in chapter 6 when he urged the believers in Rome, verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I suppose it's one of the advantages of being a little bit older to, to watch not over a few months or even a few years, but over decades, God's transforming work in lives. I've come to the conclusion that I can study and preach the theology of Romans till I'm blue in the face. And you can listen to sermon after sermon. But in the end, this is a question of the will. Is it my will to be the old, dead self in my sin? Or is it my will to become the new person that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has created me to be? Make no mistake about it. If we choose to count ourselves alive in Christ, that, that won't settle the matter. That won't ensure our complete and final and easy transformation. We'll, we'll still have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But we'll take God at his word, knowing that he himself is at work in us to will and to act according to his good pleasure. As I was rereading some teaching that I'd found helpful in this regard, if you find it hard to take a lot of what we've said this evening, here's a, a little thing you might try to take home with you. He talks about a progression that we're called to in our life with God from communication. So we're people who open our ears to the gospel and pay attention to God's word. We're, we're at the communicating level from communication to communion where we start to connect with God and with his people. From communication to communion to union. My life is hid now with Christ in God. Christ is becoming my life. His spirit and not the sin in my members is the thing that shapes me and that creates my today and tomorrow. As we progress in our relationship with God into this ever deeper union with Christ, we have the opportunity to bring these bodies, to, to bring these split personalities, to bring them together under one head, Jesus Christ. To be able to say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die 
will begin. Let's join together and let's pray. Father God, as we read Paul's account of the conflict of a, a human life, a, a person who, who wants to submit to you but finds themselves conflicted, Lord, we, we recognize it all too well. We say with Paul, what a wretched man I am. Who'll rescue me from this body that is subject to death? But Lord, we want to say this evening, thanks be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus, thank you that you've rescued us. Thank you that you've put your new resurrection life in us. Lord, would you, would you move us now to, to join in with the transforming power that you've placed in us? Help us to long to see the sin that's in our members, to, to see us move away from that and move towards the, 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 the beautiful things that you want to do in us. Help us to move from the evil to the good. Lord, help us to, to long for nothing more than our transformation and to trust you that you have given us all that we need to make it possible. We pray this in Jesus' name. When, when I look at verse 25 and Paul's cry, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a bit of that in our final hymn, and can it be? Let's stand and celebrate the gospel together.